the scripture reading. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. We're reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed." But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Church, this is God's word for us this morning. And it's an interesting passage, and I have enjoyed kind of studying through this this over this past week. But it begins with an interesting word picture, and I want us to kind of break down the word picture this morning. Because if you don't get the picture of what's happening, it's hard to understand what it means. And it starts out by telling us that we come to Christ as a, to a living stone. It's comparing Him to a living stone. Now, Something should set off in our mind immediately that there's metaphorical language, that there's a word picture. Because how many of you ever seen a stone that was alive? All right, none of us, right? Like you've never seen a stone that is alive. So automatically it clues us in as we read that there's a picture going on, something that we need to understand. According to verse 5, when you look down there, it says, You also are living stones. And so it's not just Christ who is a living stone. But we also are living stones. I almost put together a PowerPoint for you this morning because I had some pictures of, you guys imagine the wailing wall that's in Jerusalem, this wall where people are praying, supposedly the last remaining wall of the, of the old temple that was built during Herod's age. And you see this wall, or go to any other ancient uh, construction like that that the Romans built, and you have these massive, massive stone blocks. And I almost put together a PowerPoint. I was going to put little faces on there, you know, put Tank over here, Miss Susan over there. And, and we're going to put everybody on there to see how creepy it would be if there was a wall and all the walls have faces and we're looking at us, right? That's not the kind of wall he's talking about when he says that Christ is at a living stone and you are also living stones. And, but as we begin to wonder, well, what does this mean? Well, verse 5 also says, look back down there, it says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. In other words, God is building a spiritual building. It's not a, 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 a say, flesh and blood. It's not a rock and mortar sort of real building. It's not that he's building a church building, but he is building a church. And he's building up a spiritual temple, a place where he would be worshipped. And what comes to mind for me are the spiritual houses maybe that we see the temples built in the Old Testament. We've all read about Solomon's grand temple. 
Uh, just the, the beautiful cedars that were across the top and all the gold inlays and all the stone and all the courtyards. That temple was destroyed, wasn't it? And then years later, we read about Ezra and Ezra and Nehemiah. They rebuilt the temple again, even though it didn't quite compare to what Solomon had built. And then we know in, some, I think, somewhere around 33 B.C., or somewhere in there, Herod started rebuilding the temple that was to be there. Herod the Great started rebuilding the temple that was in existence when Jesus was alive. But what do we think of when we think of these spiritual buildings? Large, big structures with giant stone walls, ornate, beautifully carved places where people could come into the courtyard and pray, places where people could come in and hear the Word of God. But if you go back... Really, it was also the places of the sacrifices. But you know what was really good about those spiritual houses? It wasn't the buildings. It was that that was where people could come and meet with God. That he manifested his glory there. But the truth is, do we, we know this. Let me ask you this, though. Does God live in a house? He, sure, he certainly doesn't. And he told us in the scripture, listen, I'm not, I don't live in a house. I'm not contained by a house. Nevertheless, that's what we think of when we think about the spiritual house that's being built. But it isn't actually made of stones, according to verse 5. It is made of people. It is made of Stephen. It is made of uh, Mr. Tim. It's made of me. That we are living stones and that together we are being built up into a spiritual house. Now I want just, just to continue to examine this word picture for a moment. It doesn't say these are rocks. It says they're stones. And you say, well, what's the difference? We're not talking about just some big boulder on the side of a mountain. These rocks have been hewn out of the bigger mountain. They've been cut out. These are stones that were rectangular. They were, they were uh, hewn off so that they would have uh, perpendicular sides, so that they would be flat, so that they would be uh, good for construction. We've, we use bricks today, right? It's the same thing, but listen, I've been on some of these sites, and uh, not into Jerusalem in that area, but I've been to some of these other Roman buildings, places in Ephesus and other places. Sometimes those stones are taller than I am. And you wonder, I don't even know how they got these stones to the site sometimes because they're massive and they're, they're these big stones that we need to have in our mind right now. They've been shaped in order to be placed on the wall. Think about it. All of them have to be the same shape, don't they? Or at least they have to fit the pattern that this wall is going to be made. But then it says this. Christ in this picture is the cornerstone. Now, I don't think cornerstones matter as much in modern construction. I could ask Tim. Maybe he would know. But we don't build things quite the same way. And so I think it's interesting for us to understand this. When they laid the foundation for this building, they knew which way, which direction that wall needed to go, didn't they? And so they had to make sure for this first stone, the very first stone you laid down, everything was set up right. The foundation underneath it had to be right. The stone had to be straight. Because if not, guess what? The whole wall was going to be crooked. It was going to lose its structural integrity. And you also had to have a stone that was perfect. It couldn't have defects. It couldn't have cracks because that first stone was going to bear the weight of that wall. And so what would happen if you picked the wrong one? Your wall would be weak. It would crumble. It would fall down. The cornerstone could not have defects. 
So in your mind, I want you to picture there are all these stones laid out in a field. They've brought them all in. They know we want to build this building right here. And they, you've got to pick the best stone out of the bunch. And we know which one the best stone is. And in this picture, it is supposed to be Christ. It's a huge cornerstone. It's perfectly rectangular. Verse 6 says, in talking about Christ as the cornerstone, says this, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. We see its value because of what it's going to add to the structure. But listen, what the picture tells us here is that the architects, those that were in charge of building the building, looked at all the stones and they were willing to pick any stone besides the one that God had chosen. They did not pick the right cornerstone, the stone from which all the rest of the, the building was supposed to be built. It says, and if you look down in verse 7, it says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. In other words, as we think about this word picture, Christ is a living stone. He's the cornerstone. We are living stones to be built up in this building. But the builders, those who were in charge of this, they didn't get it. They picked the wrong stone. It says that they did not choose the right one. They rejected the stone that God had chosen. Now, I want to understand this word picture. We'll come back to that thought in a minute about them rejecting it. But I want you to think this is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. If you have your Bible, you can flip over there very quickly. It's Ephesians chapter 2, chapter, uh, verses 19 through 22. It says then, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We read Ephesians chapter 2, and it begins to clarify this. We have the foundation that was already laid. We have all the teaching of the prophets, all the teaching of the, of the apostles, and all those things culminate in what? Christ. All of the scriptures, all the promises that we have, all the covenants that were made, point us back to Jesus there was a coming Messiah, a coming Savior who would save His people. And then it said in Ephesians 2 that Christ would be the cornerstone, so the, the teaching of the Bible, all the promises were the foundation. Then Jesus is the cornerstone, and the whole building is going to be fit together based on Christ. The whole building is built upon Him. And because without it, guys, we are nothing. The spiritual house doesn't get built without Jesus Christ. He's the most important part of this. And in 1 Peter, it says that we are being built into a spiritual house. And we wonder, what does that mean? In Ephesians 2, it says, we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And remember, what do we mean by that? It's the place where God meets with his people. It's the place where he dwells. It says we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That as we come together, Christ not only dwells within us with the Holy Spirit, but we ourselves are the place of worship. That we don't need a building to come for right worship anymore. We don't have to have a special building. If, if this building burned down tomorrow, knock on wood somebody, but if this building burned down tomorrow, 
we could meet out on that field and worship in the same way. Might be hot. We might have to decide that we got we have to meet early in the morning before it gets hot. And uh, Haley says she's just not coming. She's like, I'm, I'm not getting up. So Haley's coming to the evening service where we're going to meet about 9 o'clock at night when it cools back off. All right, so, but our point of this is this. We ourselves, as a people, are now the dwelling place of God. We are the spiritual house that he's talking about, and it's made up of individuals. It's made up of us as a group together. We're talking about the creation and building up of the church. We have, again, the foundation of the apostles and promise, all this, and prophets, all that has been explained to us in the Bible. Christ himself is the cornerstone upon which all we believe is resting. He's God. He took on flesh. We li- he lived that sinful life. He never sinned the way that we did. He fulfilled all the laws of God perfectly. He died on a cross, not to pay for his own sin since he was innocent, but to pay for Daniel's sins and my sins. He died on the cross, but he remained in that tomb for three days. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He appeared to his followers. He taught them, and before returning to heaven, and now where he sits at the right hand of God, the Father. And he's going to be there for all eternity, except he's going to be coming back down to earth to dwell with his people on the new heavens and the new earth. That he will, right now, spiritually, in a spiritual sense, we are his house. He's dwelling with us now. But there will come a day where he will literally dwell with us. And all that is what we're looking forward to. But the promise is this. He gives eternal life to all who come and ask him. We're saved by grace through faith that is the gift of God. And we can receive that grace. We can receive that gift by asking Christ to save us. It's that simple. Brothers, when we placed our faith in him and called him, we joined an endless cloud of witnesses. Those who have gone before us in verse 6 in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it says that he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So look back at 1 Peter 6. It says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice cornerstone, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He's quoting there from the book of Isaiah. You can go back and read that on your own. Uh, but I want you to understand God always keeps his promises. And he's told us, look, if you would place your faith in him, the cornerstone upon which everything is built, you will not be disappointed. By the way, that is repeated in multiple places in Scripture. Romans chapter 9, verses 30 and 33 say this, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Do you guys hear that? Here's what, if you go back and look up these verses, okay? They're quoted, they're quoting originally Psalm 118. They're also quoted in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, in Acts 4, Ephesians 2, and then 1 Peter 2, 7. That's the, the passage there. It says, it says, The stone which the builders rejected 
this became the very cornerstone. These, in other words, these passages are, and these quotes from the Old Testament and the other parts of the Bible pop up over and over again. And that should signify to us these are important. And I begin to wonder, well, what does it mean? I, I just, I don't know. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and he gives them a parable. And he says, listen, there's a man, he, he bought a vineyard, and he prepared it, he built a tower, he built walls, he got it ready, and he rented it out to some people to keep it. And they were going to be growing their, their grapes and preparing the vineyard, and guess what? They didn't. They didn't do their job, and he sent people to warn them to represent the prophets, by the way. And those, what did the, the people working in the vineyard do? They killed the prophets. And he, he kept sending people and kept sending people. And finally, the owner of the vineyard said, You know what? I will send my son to them, and they will listen to him. And the son gets there, and you know what they do to the son? They kill him. And he's telling the Pharisees, and the Pharisees recognize and understand that he's talking about us. He's saying, you were supposed to be prepared. You were supposed to listen to me and come not through the law, not through self-righteousness like it said in Romans, but to come through faith and trust me and be looking for the promises that I made to you. Instead, when the promise came, when the Messiah came, the Savior came, they rejected him completely. And that's why it's repeated over and over again. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. You know why they were offended? Because when they were told they were wrong, they didn't like it. When they were told you have been sinning, they didn't respond with repentance and say, Lord, please help me. They responded by getting angry and trying to kill Jesus. That was their response, and it was about self-righteousness. This idea of, listen, I can be good enough if I just keep the rules. I get to earn my own salvation. But why, were they, why did they miss it? Because it all came, and it was a gift of grace. And they could not reconcile that with their minds. In Acts chapter 4, verse 11, it repeats again the same passage. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, and then, uh, actually, I think that one is a stone of stumbling, and a, let me get this straight. Uh, in Acts 4.11, it talks about the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone. You know what else it says in Acts chapter 4? He's telling them, listen, you guys killed the author of life. You guys killed the one, that, the Messiah, that Christ, that God has sent to save you. And then you know what he tells them? There's only one name under heaven given to men by which men may be saved. Just one name, and that's the name of Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, look, you guys rejected him when he came. Now's the time to repent and believe before you, are, you fall and you stumble over the rock. And by the way, in those passages, when they stumble over the stumbling stone, they die. Their dust is scattered. And so we see quite the consequence for missing the message of Christ. Now, we look back in, in the text. What about for those of us who believe there? Obviously, there were those who rejected him, and there's a warning against that. But in verse 7, it says, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. 
In other words, what we are now being built in the spiritual house. What now? Back in verse 5, it said that this house was for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. Now, priest and priesthood, that's not a normal everyday topic for us anymore, is it? We don't have priests in the Baptist church. I'm not a priest, by the way. Um, uh, and uh, thank the Lord for that. But I'm not a priest. We don't have a priesthood, and so we don't always use those words. But in the Old Testament, the priests had a number of tasks, didn't they? They were there. They were working in the temple. They were offering the sacrifices. And so we may think about, well, listen, they were offering sacrifices for the sins of the people. Is that something that we do today? We're making, it says to make spiritual sacrifices, not the actual sacrifices they were making in the Old Testament. And so we have to continue to remember this isn't exactly like it was in the Old Testament. But there, uh, not only did they do that, not only did they make these sacrifices, they interceded on the people's behalf. They were there to pray for the people and lead the people. And these are all things that should be in our mind as we think about how is it that we are now a priesthood and we offer up spiritual sacrifices. Because I don't expect Brother Tim to start sacrificing uh, lambs in the church next week. And if he does, uh, we'll be upset. And Stephen's certainly going to be upset if, he, if somebody tells him we've got to clean up this blood, right? By the way, we, somehow we talked about that in Sunday school this morning. I don't know, not you, Brother Tim, but... Uh, this idea of sacrificing an animal. Uh, but I want you to hear what David says. I want you to hear what King David said about sacrifice. This is Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. You hear that first part of this in Psalm 51? David says, you know, I recognize we have the law. I recognize we have all these sacrifices we're supposed to make. Lord, you don't delight in those sacrifices. Otherwise, I'd give it. You're not pleased with the burnt offerings that we're making. Then he says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. When we recognize our spiritual state, we come with, to God with humility and recognize our need of a Savior and ask Him to help us, that is, in His mind, a spiritual sacrifice. That, that we are not giving offerings, but we come to Him with a broken and contrite heart. We come with humility and faith. When we do so, we offer our whole self to Him. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, he calls us, says, listen, if we're going to be a spiritual priesthood, you know what we offer? Ourselves. All of us. Every last fiber of our being, we say, God, is yours. We've come to you. You have rescued us. You've saved us. Now we can give ourselves to you. We lay down our lives to serve him. There are more details in verse 9. Uh, take a look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are, according to this, we are a chosen race. Now, in Genesis, the covenant was made with Abraham and his descendants. 
And so we're reminded God was working through Abraham's family. But as we study in Ephesians, he has now broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentiles, which really was Jews or Abraham's family and everybody else. But now we've been brought together to one race, one people. So we're not talking about the color of skin. We're not talking about the way we often discuss race today. But it is simply this. Among God's people, there is no distinction between ethnic background or the color of your skin. That we all come to the same place. He says, you are a chosen race. You are the people that I have chosen. It's not about where you came from. It's about who I have made you to be. Now, the next it says, not just a chosen race, but we are a royal priesthood. We are here to be serving God. You know, there's only a a couple of uh, king and priests that we find in the Bible, really. Jesus himself was both king and priest. And you go back to Genesis, you find Melchizedek, who was both king and priest. And that's why we say that Jesus is a, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Well, church, it says that we are now a royal priesthood. We serve him. We have a special place in his kingdom. It says then we are a holy nation. That uh, even as we serve him in priest, we intercede for those who are still in darkness. And as a holy nation, our citizenship is not in heaven. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I am misspeaking all over the place today. You make some entertainment for you all. Listen, our allegiance isn't first to the country we were born in. It's to the country that we're going to. And where our citizenship according to the scripture, is in heaven. It even says that in Hebrews, that Abraham went out looking for a city. And we all say, well, he found the promised land, right? He made it before they ended up back in Egypt. But according to Hebrews, guess what? It says he was looking for a city whose foundations were laid by God. He was looking not for an earthly city, but for a heavenly city. And so we find that we too are part of the heavenly nation, a heavenly people, Then at the end of verse 9, it says we are a people for God's own possession. That we are God's prized possession. That he has paid for us and bought us and brought us out of darkness. All because we are now his prized possession. He loves us. And for all eternity, he plans on lavishing us with his grace and kindness and his blessings. That is what he has prepared for us. And we are now a people for his own possession. I want you to feel your worth this morning, that if you were made in the image of God, you have intrinsic value. You have value just because of, of who created you. But then when you come and you are born again, you become not just his child, but his own possession, his inheritance. He delights in us. We are brought into his family. Going back to our imagery here talked about he brings us out of darkness into marvelous light and now as as the priest as a people who have been created for him i ask you why does he do it why did he do any of it isn't it always for his glory doesn't he always come back to christ did this so that he would be glorified that he did this and look down at verse 9 At the very end, it says, Why are you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. 
You know, there's a reason that He's made us. There's a reason He does this in us. It is so that we would be able to proclaim His excellencies to all those who still live in darkness, all those that are here and even among each other, that we would be crying out and saying, you know what? God is excellent. He, we, that word excellencies can be used of moral character and virtue. It was also used for praise. And in God we find all virtue, all that is good in the fullest amount. His, he is perfect in His power, perfect in His love, perfect even in His judgment. He's perfect in carrying out His salvation and calling us out of darkness into light. Now we, His people, are to declare His praise and His excellencies to those who are still in darkness. And even among each other, those of us who are already saved, we're the spiritual house, right? We're the place where the spiritual worship is supposed to happen. We're the place where we worship in spirit and truth. And so we do that. We proclaim His excellencies. Even here this morning, we sing of His excellencies. We sing of His greatness and His character, and we proclaim it even to one another. I want to get to a few application points here as we kind of wind this down. We go back to this temple that we see as we are each living stones in it. God met with His people. He meets with us. I want you to know in that image there are many stones. There's the cornerstone, but then there's Miss Janice's stone. Mr. Bobby's stone and Mr. Tank's stone, my stone, we're all part of this building, aren't we? What happens if you start just taking those stones out of the wall? It might fall down. And even if it stands up, because I've seen some stones standing up, some walls standing up with big holes in them. But the enemy can just come right through, can he? The wall is certainly weakened. Church, I want to say this. We live in a day... Where Christians, by and large, are deciding we don't want to come to church. It's easier. And there are times and reasons where we have to stay home. It happens. There's health issues, things that come up. But the ordinary way that God has determined we would do this is together. He didn't say, well, you can be a spiritual stone over here. All by yourself. And somebody else can be all over here. It's not about the individual. It says that we are being built into a spiritual house together. That together we are being built into the dwelling place of God. I want you to hear that this morning. I think it's important because the wall is weakened and parts of it will crumble. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You know what I understand from that passage? You know why when people get out of church, they, become to get, they, they begin to get despondent, they begin to get depressed, they begin to stop caring about coming back to church? Stop caring about different things. You know why that is? Because when you stop getting together, you stop stimulating to love and good deeds. You're supposed to, according to that text, is to consider, think about how to stimulate and help somebody else, spur them onward towards love and good deeds. You're supposed to encourage one another. Not only that, it says to do it, encourage one another more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, 
as we get closer to the end, and we know the scriptures say things get worse towards the end, right? You know what you need when times are trouble? More encouragement, not less. And what I find is that if we begin to take ourselves out of the wall and say, you know what, I'm going to be a spiritual stone over here in my own yard on my own time so I can wear my pajamas. And that's not really why most people do it. I'm just making a joke. But here's the thing. We begin to miss the encouragement and we get ourselves in a dangerous place. We need to be faithful to hold fast to our beliefs and we have to do that together. I also say this as application, do not forget your priest in God's house. You are to offer up your body as a living and holy sacrifice. You are not your own. So as a priest, proclaim his excellencies, his greatness, his plan of salvation to those around you. Begin to tell people that they too can be part of God's prized possession. They too can become his family. All they have to do is come to the cornerstone. Come and tell them about Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. This is our last application here. If Christ...
Father, you are here. 